Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by comedians and podcasters Graham Clark and Dave Shimka. In the very first season of this podcast, we tackled a small portion of the kung fu boom of the late 70s. But by the 80s, the kung fu craze had expanded to include karate. And in 1984, The Karate Kid came fifth in the box office, coming just below such little-known films as Ghostbusters, Beverly Hills Cop, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and Gremlins. And that kind of success breeds exploitation movies. Martial arts movies are cheap to make. Well, the slipshod ones are, which makes them easy to exploit. Luckily for us, it spawned two bananas genre blend movies that involved martial arts that would be released in 1985. Are Jim Kata and The Last Dragon so bad they're good? Or are they just really bad? Now, before we get into that, Graham, let's start with you. Were you a karate kid? I think I was, because uh, also Chuck Norris was big at the time when I was a kid. <laughs> so I think, uh, I yeah, I think everybody I knew wanted to do karate when we were about Maybe a few years after 1985, but for sure, that was the thing to go. And, uh, you know, every parent ended up having to buy their kids a karate uniform that they then never wore ever again. So uh, <laughs> it was a great Halloween yeah, costume. Like, I yeah, feel like exactly. 80, 80, what, like four through like 90, maybe it was just like, get my kids some black pajamas, throw on a balaclava. They're a ninja. Yeah, they're ninja. Just exactly. Go. Send them on the streets, fully visible. It'll be great. I had a friend, too, that was like full karate. Like he went all the way to getting a like triple black belt or something like that. Uh, but he was like into it. I was into it, uh, you know, fancifully. He was into it, actually. And uh, he, he could beat me up. No props. Dave, did you have those kids at your school that at lunchtime would be like punching and kicking the air at each other and inevitably would miss and smack somebody and a teacher would be called? Yeah, I was one of those kids. Uh, but. <laughs> I was, I was, I never smacked anybody, but I was very obsessed with the idea of, uh, like a jump kick and like, you're just not, I wanted to be, uh, do karate just for like one photograph, but (laughs) just one shining, this one thing where your fist is out and your leg is out and you're in the, you're in midair. Uh, as the sun is rising behind you, hopefully in that perfect capture moment. (laughs) So what you're saying is you were like tempting into Instagram before Instagram was happening. Exactly. You were like, I know the shot. It's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, no one wanted to take a picture of me. And if they did, I would have to wait six weeks to get the pictures developed. And... Well, this is what's so wild to me about this time. And I was kind of looking into like, OK, why was 1985 like the hot button thing? So we've got the Karate Kid, obviously, sort of launching all of that. But this is also the year of Ninja Turtles. This is the first year this comes out, uh, the animated series in the comic book, um, which, of course, have, have you guys read the comic book? Yes. No. Yeah. No. OK. Graham, the comic book's very different from the TV series. It's eh? gritty. The comic book's gritty. <laughs> it yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's very weird that you would take one and then interpret it into the other. It's like, you know what kids love? 
turtles and ninjas. Yeah, yeah. Let's just put them together and mutation, genetic <laughs> mutation explained in a really you terrible know, way. It's all I was interested in as a kid, those three categories. <laughs> you know, I ended up watching um, the Bruce Lee box set with my sister when we were growing up. I think she was like 14 or 15. And she was so traumatized by um, Chuck Norris's back hair for some mm. reason, or sorry, his chest hair. The fact that it like wrapped all the way around like it was giving him a hug <laughs> upset her on levels I've never seen like follicular things upset anybody. Well, now it's that really I know about it, I'm upset too. I only ever saw him with a shirt <laughs> on and now I feel betrayed. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to get into Bruce Lee and Bruce exploitation into some of our films in a bit and, and uh, chatting a bit about him. So our first movie today... I love so, so many movies that were built on the premise that people love these two things, even though there's no evidence they will go together. But let's see how much money we can make on where the Venn diagram will meet in the middle. And Jim Cotta is one of those movies. Now, before we get into it, what you need to know on the outset is that before the 1984 Olympics held in Los Angeles, it was widely thought that that was going to be the last Olympics ever. Uh, however, because of a series of savvy maneuvers by the organizers involving media and technology, it became the most watched television event ever, including up to this day, and made stars of a number of Olympians. The star of our movie today, Kurt Thomas, was not one of those Olympians. We'll get into why later. But one Mary Lou Retton was. And that spunky gymnast made gymnastics an overnight sensation with people clamoring for gymnastic content. Were they clamoring for a movie that combined karate and gymnastics? Well, Schlockmeister Fred Weintraub sure thought so, and thus we get Jim Cata. And thank God we did, because I actually really love this movie. I think this falls into the so bad it's good category. But Dave, you don't agree with me. You think this is just bad. Uh, yeah, I think most people would say it's very, very bad. <laughs> uh, no, I'm too hard on Jim Cotta. No, you're right. It's good. <laughs> it's just bonkers. Like it, it's it's one of those things where like if you tried to make something like this, you couldn't. There is an earnestness in the filmmaking of this that just shines through and is just delightful. And who? What's the name of the star? Kurt. Kurt Thomas. Yeah, didn't he didn't uh, have a big acting career before or after this, as far as no. I can tell. Um, and it's uh, amazing why. <laughs> Before this, he was appearing in a number of um, commercials, and it's one of the reasons he wasn't able to be in the 1984 Olympics, because at that point, they had really, really strict uh, rules of what an amateur was. And if you had sponsorships in ed after like a certain level, you couldn't compete. And so he actually was known as a spokesperson for KFC, of all things. So there is this Perfect. amazing ad where he is pommel horsing, and then he jumps off the pommel horse and like takes this tentative little bite of chicken and like just like... Mm, it's, That's dangerous. It's That's amazing. dangerous for a gymnast to have greasy hands like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, if you're if it's finger licking good, you're getting all that chalk in your mouth. <laughs> it's kind of a counterintuitive sponsorship opportunity. And then he was also in a TV series called True Confessions, which is based on True Confession magazine. Are you familiar with this? Oh, is this a, a saucy okay. magazine? Hundred percent. So what people would do is they would like write in their like True Confession stories of like you know they had illicit lovers or whatever. He was in an episode about gymnasts, obviously. Uh, the series was hosted by Bill Bixby, of all people. And if you go online, you can see clips. They don't have the whole episode up, but you can see clips. And this thing is 
exactly as cheesy and ridiculous wow. and fun as you think it would be. So yeah, Kurt Thomas, not a huge career in acting, but he also did a bunch of commentary and stuff for like ESPN and stuff like that because he knew what he was doing. Like he really was an incredible gymnast, which you do see in Jim Cotta. Am yeah. I right here? Oh, definitely. Yeah, there's definitely gymnastics in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we go any further, Dave, do you want to give us a quote unquote plot summary of this one? Uh, sure. Uh, so uh, it starts with uh, uh, Kurt Thomas, who plays, I don't know, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> For Clyde. <laughs> uh, he's, uh, he, he is training, and then uh, some CIA guy is like, well, your training is done. Time to go. Put it into action, and we're going to have, have you go compete in this game in Parmistan, which is... Uh, <laughs> presumably the place where they make Parmesan. Uh, and they take him to the other side of the world and he's got to compete in this game. Oh, alongside the daughter of the... Uh, I, what was it? The Shah? He's like an emperor of some sort. Yeah. 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 And he... Uh, so they become uh, hot and heavy. And then he's got to go compete in this game because... It will give America some kind of tactical advantage in Star Wars, <laughs> not the movie, but the <laughs> missile launching uh, thing against Russia. Uh, so they uh, they send him over there and he competes in this game <laughs> against like one really big, strong guy, uh, one guy who knows martial arts and a bunch of just like ma mafia guys in tracksuits. <laughs> There's a bunch of just nobody, like, guys who are, you know they're going to die. <laughs> what do you want to bet one of the producers had some sort of investment in tracksuits? He was like, I, I can get a few of these that fell off the back of a truck. Here we go. And uh, then he, uh, so he completes this course, and he's also got to defeat the the traitor to the, the emperor. And he does. And you know what? Oh, yeah. And the, the big climax happens in... A castle that has been converted into a mental institution for the criminally insane. We can talk all about how sensitive this movie was to <laughs> mental illness. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, he defeats everyone. Um, oh, yeah, and he's reunited with his dad, who he thought, who th who he thought died in the game years earlier. And uh, then uh, America gets to <laughs> launch their missiles or whatever. <laughs> Oh, also, I forgot to mention that he he uh, encounters several gymnastics apparatus along the way <laughs> to help him fight, including a high bar and a pommel horse. Uh, I was I looked up all of the men's apparatuses, and there was no vault, uh, right. and there was no rings that I noticed. But I think he did everything else. He did the pommel horse, the high bar, and the floor exercise. <laughs> The tumbling. the tumbling. Well, yeah. he was he, he was known for his tumbling specifically. He did these um, like he actually has somersaults named after him that no other person has been able to kind of do. And apparently, one of them it was disqualified entirely from competition because it was too dangerous. Oh wow! So yeah, so like he's a pretty intense guy. What is your favorite moment where they attempt to disguise a piece of equipment, guys? I mean, the pommel horse is pretty. That was that was my favorite when he was like really up against it, and yeah. uh, it's because it's a just like a, a chunk of something with handles on it. 
<laughs> I like um, the high bar in the middle of the streets where it's mm-hmm. just like, yeah, of course, that you just have bars connecting these these places. And then the, like the bar and the tree as well. It's like very well hidden by a few sparse branches. Yeah. I'm like this yeah. is very impressive. There's also uh, a lot of ropes in it. I don't think ropes are a, a uh, those are more of a gym class. <laughs> Thing, not quite a gym gymnastics thing. But he would also climb the ropes and have his legs stuck out like a gymnast. Like if there was a rope climbing, that that's how. It was like a Jean-Claude Van Damme move, right? Where like he does like the splitty thing yeah. and kind of calls himself up that way. That was the one moment where I, I thought there was an opportunity for a stunt that didn't happen where I was like, if this was actually happening, that would be a really cool stunt where uh, when the guy is setting the rope on fire at the bottom and he mm-hmm. has to climb to the top, I was like, if he's actually climbing that thing with the rope on fire that would be really cool but they cut away enough times that i don't think that was actually happening no or he could have jumped to another rope yeah uh that would have been cool yeah it was weird that yeah there was another time i uh the uh, bad guy <laughs> cut a rope and i thought he was gonna like swing down and uh, have to save himself but he just swung down about two feet. <laughs> <laughs> I also like that the powers of the other guys that are competing just appear to be, they're big. <laughs> like yeah. that's, that's about it. Yeah. The, the, all the guys that die really quick all look like uh, people who drive a cab. They all look like, <laughs> like different. <laughs> uh, like they all had the same hairdo. And uh, they were like a certain, they were all kind of like early 50s, I want to say. <laughs> And then, uh, yeah, there were a lot. It was like a, a he was in some kind of uncle race, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> but the uh, uh, he also like his training seems like it took place over like two fall days or something like that. Like, it's mm-hmm. he he seemed like he was well, uh, well equipped, but the, why didn't they just send the people who trained him? In to do this gymkata if they were so good. Well, because he had to be trained by multiple people to put everything into one tiny little gymnastic package in a montage that goes on forever. Okay, I'm not sure. This may have the longest training montage in film history and the longest slow motion uh, scene. Because that scene in the the, the village of crazy people, which (laughs) Mm -hmm. I know is not politically correct, six minutes straight of just slow motion. And I was like, that is one way to pad your runtime, guys. Well done. I liked it. There was one scene where he was hitting on the the woman the love interest and he kept doing flips and being himself and then talking to her and then flipping back and forth oh yeah i thought that was a pretty that was a pretty good use of flips and <laughs> did you guys notice this is based on a book yes at the yeah, end i, I was that. shocked <laughs> Okay, so what's wild about the book is that it has actually been in development since the 50s, and uh, the starring role was originally intended to be Rock Hudson, of all people. It was written by Dan Tyler Moore, who, among being a noted author, was also a lieutenant in the U.S. Army, uh, who was noted because he blinded Teddy Roosevelt in a boxing match. (laughs) He hit him so hard, his eye got messed up. So there's that. What a resume. Yeah. <laughs> totally. But the book was originally set in like medieval times and like it was still about military strategy. But we were saying earlier, it's about the Star Wars program, which if people don't know, that was like a, a satellite laser delivery system that the United States would be able to basically shoot off missiles into Moscow from a distance and, you know, destroy everything. It's interesting how all of that sort of fits into that very 80s narrative of it's us versus any sort of dictatorship, more than likely the Russians. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
but we're also working with the what appears to be a dictatorship in order to go against another dictatorship. Does that track for you guys? I don't think I think you thought it through more than the producers <laughs> did. <laughs> um, there did the original book also have gymnastics in it? No, it did not. He was just he was just a multidisciplinary. So originally this wasn't supposed to be Kurt Thomas. This was supposed to be Christopher Atkins. Do you guys know who that is? Oh, from the Blue Lagoon? Yeah. Unfortunately, Christopher Atkins around 1984, 85, 86 was suffering from some fairly serious substance abuse issues. Uh, he had a much publicized breakdown in 1986. But Fred Weintraub, who produced this, he believed that he had discovered Bruce Lee. Um, we'll get into that in a minute. And so he was like, you know what I can do? Make another star. And so he was like, Kurt Thomas, this seems like a guy who should be in a movie. He's also very tiny. That's the other thing that uh, people who haven't seen it. He's a very tiny little man. He's 5'4". Five, 5'4", four. Five, four, yeah. He's itty bitty. <laughs> but I think that makes a good movie star. That's true. Yeah. Like small body, big head. <laughs> <laughs> and a big smile. Like he's got a good... What I do appreciate is that he seems like he's trying. Yeah. Like he's not good at it, but like he genuinely seems like he's doing his best. His line deliveries, he says them with like this little like Hollywood smile, half smirk. Yeah. Don't trust anybody, right? Sometimes you just got to take a chance. Yeah, he he doesn't have that thing of like, oh, I'm in a bad movie and I know it. He's he doesn't know he's in a bad movie, but he it doesn't come off as like uh, pitiful. Like I'm like, oh, this poor guy doesn't know he's in a bad movie. No, he, this is his movie. Yeah, and he does seem to be. There's a couple lines that he actually smiles while he delivers them, so he's exactly right. Like. They all kind of know that I'm sure the pommel horse scene they all had a good laugh at before they shot. <laughs> well, he actually did say that. He said they did their best to disguise it. But because of the way pommel horses are specifically built with like the handholds, he just couldn't do the kind of stuff that he sh needed to do. And they tried it over and over and they were like, all right, we just got to make it look like a pommel horse. Let's just do that. Yeah, well, it worked. That was what I was waiting for the whole <laughs> film. So, um, yeah, it's I don't know. Like I I got so lost in the plot. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't understand what was going on. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, why was he racing in this 100-year-old competition? And the first day they go after some uh, prisoners that they let free. Yeah, and they just watch. They watch other people race. Yeah. And, yes. And then, so the yeah. premise, from what I understand, I think the premise is it's a notoriously isolated country. And if you can complete the competition, you are granted one wish because that's what you do. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> the con can just do wishes. And so that would be his wish would be like, we want to put a military base here for the United States. And I guess <laughs> they just have to do that. <laughs> NATO be damned. <laughs> I, I literally didn't know about the wish thing. I didn't, I didn't yeah. realize that was part of it. And the, so the, the, the game itself has weird rules where there's these people holding flags kind of, I guess, like showing you where to go. Yeah. But sometimes they'll just put their flags down. I think they're just got, they just got lazy. <laughs> and then uh, you're so you're ra racing, but you're being chased by uh, people who want to kill you. And but they're not allowed to kill. You're only allowed to kill you on your level. If you get to the next stage, they they have to get they have to get to that next stage too before they can kill you. What do you guys think it's like to be one of those flag guys? Like, how do you think they got that gig? By being the worst at their job. <laughs> <laughs> Whoever wasn't a good enough uh, henchman. Yeah, like be, by being too ugly to be in the other <laughs> scenes, and so they had to wear a mask. <laughs> 
the there's another part in it that I loved where he was uh, whoever was the guy that was running things uh, was showing him where they run on like a little uh, model that he had made. And uh, yeah. like it was, there's no reason that the model would be there. You could have just said what it was going to be. Like first you run, then you go up a hill and, but they had this little diagram all made. And then there's a scene where they like make them run through corn. That's like the first <laughs> leg of the trip is that you have to run through no, corn. No, a, a corn field, not just like a bucket of corn. <laughs> one of the things I turned to my partner at one point, we watched this together and I turned him and I said, at what point wouldn't you just like hide? <laughs> just yeah. let everybody oh, yeah. go past you and then finish afterwards. Can you not, just, especially in the corn, like wh why couldn't you just do that? Yeah. And also everybody else that ran through the corn, you could see their head above the corn, but not him. <laughs> <laughs> this is why they had to send him because he had specific skills and physical attributes for this particular endeavor. I'm so glad you told me about the wish thing. I can't believe I missed that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, like what if at the last minute he was like, uh, oh, I wish I was taller. <laughs> then they would get out the silicon injectors and just go for it. You would have the tallest forehead known to mankind. That's what they do in sumo wrestling, eh? There's like a couple sumo wrestlers who are too short to go in the big leagues. So they get silicon injected into their head to make them tall enough to compete. Gross. Yeah, it's a thing. Cool. <laughs> yeah, you're just, learn you're just learning things all over yeah, today. Don't let your genetics tell you what's what. <laughs> I was thinking about a movie like Ocean's Eleven, and it feels like that's the kind of movie that Kurt Thomas should be in. Like like him fitting into tiny spaces, helping people out by doing weird acrobatics. You know what I mean? Like he's part of a team. He's not a solo operator. Oh, sure. Like with they could do like uh, The Expendables, but it's just uh, gymnasts. <laughs> <laughs> Get Mary Lou Retton in there and yeah. she's just like got a knife between her teeth as she crawls through tiny things. So my, you, you asked about uh, the, if we were karate crazy as kids. My sisters were gymnastics crazy. And at our the cabin that my parents had, we would they would do this thing where you would there was a sunken living room and you would run up and try to land perfectly on the first stair and then the second stair and then the third stair. And uh, they would always pretend to be Mary Lou Retton and they made me pretend to be male gymnast, <laughs> Mitch Gaylord. Yay! <laughs> Could you ever land it? How, where were you? And how many people were injured in the making of this uh, uh, No, this was, this was like a pretty easy. Like it was, it was a game of inches of just like whether you, you know, as my sisters would say, stuck it. <laughs> whether, <laughs> Uh, you would try to stick the landing. That was, but it would be like, you know, oh, you wobbled too much. It was, it, there was no, uh, no chance of getting hurt. All right. Well, before we wrap this segment up, I wanted to get into the producer, Fred Weintraub, uh, a little bit, because he's a really interesting guy. So his claim was that he had discovered Bruce Lee, which isn't actually true, because Bruce Lee came to California when he was 18. He was working in restaurants, and he was developing uh, his own style of martial arts called Way of the Intercepting Fist. Um, and he was doing a bunch of exhibitions and really kind of honing his skills at that point. He was also a child star in China, so he had performance experience already. So he was discovered by another producer and put in the Green Hornet TV show in 1966. And that was canceled after one series. And he's like, oh, okay, I have my in and I can really show people what I can do here in Hollywood. Uh, that didn't really take off. He pitched the show Kung Fu the Legend, which uh, they went forward with. But of course, they did not cast him. They cast a white guy. Oh, with David Carradine? 
Yeah. Yeah, that's the one with David Carradine. So he went back to Hong Kong where he made three movies. And then he was rediscovered by Fred Weintraub, who found him training, of all people, Steve McQueen. And so he brought him back to North America to do a Hong Kong Hollywood co-pro, which ended up being Enter the Dragon. And Bruce Lee unfortunately passed away before Enter the Dragon was released. But the movie and how cool it is and watching him do his thing coupled with his mysterious death, quote unquote, is what really launched Bruce Lee to another level. So if you don't have Enter the Dragon, we don't have Bruce Lee as the icon we know him as. But aside from that, Fred Weintraub was also a bit of a star maker in that he owned the New York club, The Bitter End. Uh, Graham, are you familiar with this? Yeah, that's like uh, uh, Bob Newhart and Smothers Brothers and that kind of ilk mort saul would yeah. play at the bitter end yeah 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 totally uh bob dylan and george carlin and joan rivers all of them got their start there and apparently it's the place where the brick background started for comedy clubs oh yeah so i was like oh that's interesting but he ran that for years and years and years that also helped uh subsidize his um his movie producing holy cow this guy's amazing holy shit what a yeah, resume i know so So Kurt Thomas had like every right to be like, you know, there's potential that I could go somewhere as an action star in this. This guy discovered Bruce Lee. I mean, lightning doesn't always strike twice. (laughs) I'm just saying (laughs) Bruce Lee had some other skills that were going on. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it was like it's a fun enough. uh, It's it's a better plot than any Chuck Norris movie that I've ever seen in my life. Like it's it's probably more fun than any Chuck Norris movie I've ever seen. So. It's uh, yeah, you're right. He had a, a reasonable expectation that this would be this would be a good film to be in. I had never seen this before, but I had heard it like it's a famously bad movie uh, where he, you know, he discovers these apparatus, these, uh, you know, uh, pommel horses and bars as he's in a fight. Uh, I was expecting more of that. I was expecting him to like every single scene to have a different like, a, you know, oh, there's a balance beam over here. <laughs> My question for you guys is, what makes a bad movie enjoyable for you? Because I know it's not for a bit. Like, there's some people that watch Manos, The Hands of Fate, and they're like, this is the greatest thing ever made, and they can watch it over and over again, or like The Room or something like that. But I know it, it's not for everybody. What works for you guys for a bad movie? I think any bad movie that I loved as a, like a teenager was something that I watched with other people, and we would make, you know crack wise about what was going on in screen and have inside jokes and all that kind of stuff. So I think had I discovered Jim Cotta as a teenager, that would have been like the perfect place for that. It would have been the perfect kind of movie to sit around and like razz it. So that to me is what makes it like a, if it's fun to watch in that regard, then it's so, so bad. It's good. I like when it's, uh, when there's like delusions of grandeur, when, when like with the room, you're like, Oh, this guy thinks he's making a a masterpiece. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And that has a bit of this here. And it's, uh, it, of course, being being razzed. This, of course, was featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000. And they took the word Gymkata as like anytime they were watching something with an action sequence, they would yell Gymkata <laughs> as like someone hits somebody else. <laughs> so it, it has that same sort of reputation. It's, it's not good. But there's also this weird t- out of time quality. Like this is 1985. This is the same year as like slick productions like Back to the Future. This feels like a movie made in like... Like 1978. Yes. Yeah, I would. I would have guessed this was a 1980 movie. There is. Yeah, it does look like. It, the, apparently, they shot this in Yugoslavia, and it looks like they just like used old cameras that were lying around. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that we just found in Yugoslavia. And they also made like just ethnicity. 
<laughs> it was just kind of yeah. like vague. <laughs> Maybe Eastern European somewhere. Uh... Yeah, the emperor is just like he, clearly an American guy who just like he sounds like Mel Brooks when he talks. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a big bushy mustache. You are all men of courage and skill. You've already shown that by surviving the difficult journey into this country. Yakmala! They just spent all of the time and specificity on how the game works and the different levels of the game. And you don't have to worry about anything else. Just focus on the game, Graham. And I like the other thing that was notable is they had hired some extras that were like missing teeth or had a weird eye. And they kept showing them in the crowd sequences, I guess, to make it seem more authentic. (laughs) Yeah. So in the for speaking of authenticity, in the village of the crazies, uh, those actually were people from a local mental health institution. No. Uh, and uh, yeah, hundred percent. And Kurt Thomas was just like, they just came to work for a bunch of booze in a buffet, and they had a great time. We didn't actually punch and kick them; those were stunt people. But like sure. all those people you're seeing are <laughs> those actual people, people show up and they're getting kicked in the face. <laughs> <laughs> Have a buffet. In terms of exploitation movies, this could have gone way, way worse. Yeah. It also has uh, not one but two uh, instances of a dummy falling a great Duh. distance. <laughs> and then just landing with like a <laughs> boneless thud. Oh, man. Okay, this is also the same year as Rambo 2, Rocky 4. And uh, as I mentioned, there's probably like 14 other Amer- like ninja, American ninja, whatever. But this is specifically American ninja, which is about like more communist dictatorshipy sort of stuff ca- trying to come in. So it is interesting that this really does uh, grab on to that, um, that same feeling of, yay, America, we're going to uh, save the world through various martial arts. Yeah. And uh, really, that was the same year Rocky Four came out. Holy cow! What a yeah. what a rich communist era. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> I mean, it was uh, it sort of felt tacked on the the like oh this is also to defeat Russia. <laughs> it was like it felt like it had to be like legally. But when you get into it, gymnastics actually, and the reason why, one of the reasons why gymnastics became such a big thing is that up until uh, Kurt Thomas and Mary Lou Redden and those people, um, those were categories specifically that were won all the time by the Japanese and by Russians, Mm. like every single time. So when they started winning, that became one of those symbolic, like, we are the greatest nation. Now we're Mm -hmm. beating our two biggest competitors because China wasn't a competitor at the time. And didn't Russia boycott the 84 Olympics? Yes. So that's. They did. That's one of the reasons why the Americans did so well, because the Americans boycotted the ones in Moscow in 1980. That's why they thought the Olympics were going to be the last ones in L.A., because uh, leading up to it was the Moscow Olympics, followed by the Montreal Olympics. And the Montreal Olympics were like a famous disaster. Apparently, they lost so much money on that. They spent a ton. They lost a bunch of money. And then the Olympics weren't even going to be in Los Angeles. They were going to be in Iran. And then everything went down in Tehran that went down in Tehran. And uh, then they were like, okay, well, I guess we have to send it to L.A. Uh, And then L.A. set up, like, it's actually really interesting what they did. They had, like, the first emails set up so that um, the different people could email, like, journalists and stuff internally. Uh, This is, like, 1985 email, which is wild. They had all these, like, media connections that, like, they 
they were then uh, promoting these Olympians as stars, which had never happened before. It was always like, oh, yay, we're, we're, it's the American, not it's Mary Lou Retton. Right. So this is the first time they create celebrities out of him. Uh, leave it to Los Angeles to do that, of course. So this, the Olympics then really changed the game of what that, what the Olympics was going to be. It saved the Olympics. Was this the only gymnastic movie or was it like, was it such a craze that there was like other ones that they kind of rattled off really quick? Actually, you'd be surprised. Uh, so there was another one in 1986 called American Anthem, which starred the previously mentioned Mitch Gaylord, as well uh-huh. as Mrs. Wayne Gretzky, Janet Jones, and was directed by Albert Magnoli two years after he directed Purple Rain. And if I can direct you to an earlier episode of the podcast where we talked about Teenage Dream slash Flyin', which is all about gymnastics, uh, as well as featuring a very, very young Keanu Reeves in one of his first <laughs> roles, as well as a dancing Dennis Simpson from Polka Dot door that was a really good episode i totally recommend it i like uh measuring things with james bond like you know something's popular if james bond starts doing it like he'll start doing karate in one movie or parkour in another movie i do think it would be great if there was if this movie was so popular that like timothy dalton was (laughs) on a pommel horse to tumble Yeah. All right. I'm leaving us on that note, just with the image of Timothy Dalton just doing gentle somersaults over and over again with his long bandy legs. <laughs> All right. When we come back, we're headed back to Motown. It's The Last Dragon, and that's coming up after the break. Although Motown didn't produce or co-produce a lot of movies, we sure find a way to talk about a lot of them on the podcast and on the TV show. From The Wiz to Mahogany to Thank God It's Friday, the Motown production stamp is a guarantee of high drama, high quotability, and of course, an amazing soundtrack. But if you were to say Kung Fu by way of Motown, I still don't think you can imagine the glorious spectacle that is The Last Dragon. It's a pity this movie would be the last of the Motown production features because, to me, it feels like they were just getting started defining a lot of the imagery of the decade. If you haven't seen The Last Dragon, it's kind of hard to explain exactly what happens, but we are going to try anyway. And by we, I mean Graham. Graham, (laughs) do you want to give this one a go? Uh, Sure, but at any point, if I'm forgetting anything, feel free to jump in because there's a lot, a lot goes on this film i'm just gonna jump in and say and then vanity shows up yes yes vanity (laughs) shows up that was a big moment in the film it starts with a young man who's uh, completed his training uh his his mentor has taken him as far as he can go and so he says you gotta go and meet the the master or, or whatever you have to go meet him and uh i'm gonna give you this medallion and give it to the master and and he'll be able to I don't know what it was, but he'd be able to he was, finish it. It was up. owned by Bruce Lee. It was a piece of Bruce Lee memorabilia. <laughs> and he right. will recognize your achievement as a martial artist <laughs> right. through this memorabilia. So then uh, this guy hits the streets of New York and uh, he dresses the whole time uh, in like traditional Chinese outfits. And uh, there's a lot of uh, like uh, people playing against stereotype in the film. And so he's. He's very uh, trying his best to not be um, offensive, I think. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> he uh, he goes into this city. Uh, meanwhile, we have a bad guy who is uh, trying to make his wife or girlfriend into a pop star. And mm-hmm. so has decided that uh, Vanity, who's got her own kind of countdown show, he's going to get her to put the music video on her show to make her his girlfriend a star. 
Um, all the while, there's a piranha tank in the uh, in the apartment, <laughs> and you're like, "That's going to come up later for Very sure." Very important plot point: the piranha <laughs> tank. <laughs> and uh, and so uh, during the the show of uh, Vanity, she's she actually plays like a real what is it Rhythm of the Night or something was like the song DeBarge, yeah, yeah, it's, it's DeBarge's Rhythm of the Night, and you see the whole music video. It was awesome. I was like, "Oh, this has got great music in it." And then out of nowhere, William H Macy shows up and does like a quick. <laughs> Two sentence cameo in a windbreaker, <laughs> in a glorious windbreaker, saying that some ba- some some bad guys are going to be coming looking for her. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Then, but and then we never see him. Again. <laughs> That's right. We see him in that one warning. Um, and the the set uh, that Vanity's on is amazing. It's all neon and giant screens. And she does a number. She sings anyway. So she's fantastic. She's heading home from after the show, and she's about to get abducted and our friend the hero he goes into full uh karate mode and kicks all the bad guys uh butts and then uh she takes off with the medallion uh he loses the medallion and uh he ends up having to go meet her to get the medallion and then stuff starts happening romance wise and uh and then so all these plots all these various plots converge you see and uh the love (laughs) story and the action story and the kidnapping story and all this and uh, meanwhile, there's a whole other plot going on <laughs> with, <laughs> with a guy who says he's the master and he has like a bunch of henchmen and he's kind of there's some break dancing in the movie and he's got an awesome costume and an awesome hairdo. And, and a great he, name, Show Enough. Show Enough. And he keeps, uh, yeah. he keeps asking his troops, uh, who's the best? Show Enough. So you kind of forget about that plot line for a while. That goes away. Well, for yeah, <laughs> it's really unclear what. What he wants. He'll be, just, he just uh, wants to be the best. That's the thing, right? Like, that's when he first shows up in the movie theater. He's just like, challenge me. Like, he doesn't need anything else than just to be the best. He, yeah, yeah, he wants to be the best. And he clearly is. If you see his costume, it's the best one in the movie. Um, and then meanwhile, meanwhile, there's a plot still with our hero who's trying to find his master. And he ends up going to uh, a fortune cookie place looking for the master. Turns out the master is just a robot that makes uh, the fortunes. <laughs> so he goes back to his uh, mentor and says, what the hell, man? There's no master. And the the mentor kind of lets himself off the hook. Like, no, you got to look in your brain. That's that's what I meant to do. There's like a real red shoes moment of like the magic was inside yeah, exactly. you all along. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, finally the showdown between him and the, the mob boss who's trying to get his girlfriend famous. That happens. And then following that, after he's defeated all, following that, Shonuff shows up. And uh, he show, he has magical powers. And just when you think our hero is doomed, he discovers he has magical powers, too. He defeats Shonuff. And uh, and then the mob guy gets arrested. And, uh, you know, everybody's happy. Vanity gets away. And uh, I believe that's credits. Am I missing anything in that plot? <laughs> no, I think that's about, that's about right. Uh, you missed the ultimate battle brawl with all the kids from his. That's my favorite part yes. of the movie is all the, the battling and all the kids featuring a very, very young uh, Ernie Ray's Jr. Do you know who that is? No. Okay, the little, little kid that kicks ass, yeah. right? The little boy. That's Ernie Ray's Jr. who would go on to be Kino in uh, the Ninja Turtle Secrets from the Ooze, as well as a bunch of other stuff. He uh, nice. he was a, a fight choreographer. So was his dad. His dad actually choreographed a bunch of the scenes here, uh, which is why he's in it. And his dad owned like a string of karate dojos across uh, Southern California. That's amazing. So. Yeah, so that's so that's uh, that's little Kino. <laughs> he's so he's so cute. Yeah, I forgot. There's also yeah a plot line of him teaching a 
teaching a karate class. And then there's also a plot line of him and his little brother. And his little brother has a crush on Vanny. There's so much going on in this film. <laughs> I feel like Jim Cotto was really a lot more linear than than this film. But it was, uh, man, what a rush watching this. It was great. And either of you seen this movie before? Mm-mm. I had not seen it, not heard of it. No. Really? Not even heard of it? Like within... 15 seconds i was like this movie's gonna rock because it's just <laughs> it's got this great music and it's uh this guy's showing off his moves and uh well, it's like, produced by marion barry of motown <laughs> yeah i was like this is gonna be great and it was yeah uh barry gordy <laughs> sorry marion barry was the mayor of washington dc <laughs> i get my berries mixed up <laughs> that's all right there's there's very there's many a berry so yeah. it's easy to get them kind of squashed together i understand <laughs> oh uh, boy that's how you make a jam <laughs> <laughs> well done way to run with that one um it's so we've talked about motown productions previously on the show specifically talking about the whiz and mahogany now uh barry gordy's only movie that he directed was uh, mahogany and if you've seen mahogany that's another big old mess of a bunch of stuff going on but like Motown had some genuine hits Lady Sings the Blues was one of their first feature films that they actually produced and that movie is amazing if you haven't had a chance to see it it's uh, Diana Ross and Billy Dee Williams as her husband and she was nominated for an Oscar for her like debut film and it's really really something special and then they figure out that like what people really want is like they want the music they want like bright lights and like MTV stuff and that's kind of what they do from there on in Right, And this is like the perfect encapsulation of all of that is this is very much like MTV in movie form. Yeah. And it's uh, it works like it's you're right. It's like a precursor to music. video. I mean, there was a music video in the movie. A couple, actually, it seemed like uh, a couple of big, you know, dance and singing numbers. Um, but yeah, I think they were right. If they were like, this is where movies should be. I think they were correct. More movies should be as fun as this one. What were your guys' favorite moments here? I mean, I love when Shonoff shows off that he's got magical powers. As soon as that happens. Because <laughs> they do that 80s think- thing where like red kind of surrounds, like kind of Ghostbusters. And, or like Tron. Like I kept thinking about like Tron laser stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Shonoff is great. The performances are so great like they the kids are all good the kids have so much dialogue and they do it uh vanity's great and the three guys at the fortune cookie factory are all great it's, yeah it does like what jim Cotta lacked this movie had <laughs> this has just so much joy in it like there's this like celebration of martial arts but also of like the music and like i mean the love story makes no sense whatsoever about why like vanity would be into this total weirdo um but it's it's just such an alive bright fun movie that just doesn't stop and part of that is because are you are you guys familiar with any of the works of mike schultz what did he make Oh, a lot. Okay, so uh, his calling card really is Cooley High, which we talked about on the show, which, which if you haven't seen, cannot recommend that one enough. Uh, Car Wash, of course, which is an iconic film, uh, released the same year as Last Dragon was Cush Groove, which stars people like Sheila E. and Run DMC and the Fat Boys and uh, New Edition. So obviously he, you know, knew his music stuff and really know how to play it. Speaking of music stuff, he also directed the absolutely bonkers Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which uh, is very good because of him, just- 
despite some other people, I cannot <laughs> recommend going back and listening to that episode enough because that story is bonkers. Nice. Uh, but he's still working. He works a ton in television right now. Uh, and at one point in the 70s, there were really only two major African-American directors working, and it was Mike Schultz and Sidney Poitier. Oh, shit. So this guy, as you would put it, Graham has an incredible resume. But he's so good at working with kids, and he's so good at the, like these big, bright uh, musical numbers that are sort of over the top, but still kind of grounded. So you're like, so it doesn't feel like Jim Cotta. We're like, oh, we're doing this now. Now we're doing this. Like everything here still has a flow and never really falls off the rails. And it's also like very clever thing that they, they've done where they show so many clips from Bruce Lee movies that it feels like Bruce Lee is one of the characters in the Yeah, film. they do kind of pad, a, a pad out the time with those. <laughs> like the, <laughs> the montage went on a long time. <laughs> this also falls squarely into the Bruce Bruceploitation uh, category of films. Are you guys familiar with this? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Graham, what, what, what about Bruce Bruceploitation? It was all, every uh, movie had some kind of uh, spin on one of his movies. It would have Dragon in the title or whatever. And there'd be, there was a, a list of them, like guys who were either had the last name Lee or the first name Bruce or kind of like cover band versions of uh, Bruce Lee. And they made these movies that were like basically carbon copies of uh, Bruce Lee's work, but cheaper, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And some of them were like Shaw Brothers movies, right? So that they didn't have like super low production budgets. But what was so wild about them is that they would use actual footage from Bruce Lee movies or from like Bruce Lee's actual life, including his funeral. And then they would like Jeez. piece them together into things. Um, my personal favorite uh, of the impersonators was Bronson Lee, which was half Charles Bronson, Bronson half Bruce Hell Lee. Oh yeah. So who obviously did revenge movies. Um, but there's like hundreds of these. And this falls directly into that, which tells you just how big Bruce Lee was, especially in terms of like the mystery of his death, right? Like half those movies are about the true story of Bruce Lee. How do they get the footage, though? It was a big enough event that there would have been like news footage of it, stuff like that. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because there wasn't there a big like Hollywood movie that was also about his death? There was. And actually, the book by Robert Klaus, who directed our last movie, is what that movie is based on. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. Holy shit. It all it all comes together. It sure does. We, do, we don't just arbitrarily pick these two movies, Graham. Everything has a tie. We do our research here. We're very professional. You can't just take a bunch of, like, I can't make a movie now and just, like, I'm um, putting the Avengers in it. Yeah. No, no. That's <laughs> just what I'm doing. No, it goes beyond that. Then they had a TV series because they had a bunch of the offcuttings of, like, the Green Hornet where he played Cato, and they had all of that, and they just recut all of these old scenes of Bruce Lee into a television series way possible. Posthumously. Oh, wow. wow. I also heard like in during uh, when whatever Green Hornet was popular in China, it was recut to make Kato the hero. Like it was called Kato over there. And they the Green Hornet was just like his secretary, basically. <laughs> his driver, his secretary. If you want to go back and listen to our episode on Kung Fu from 1978, first season, um, there is a lot about uh, the African-American uh, African connection to Kung Fu. And that's starting like from the very beginning of when these films would be playing, because they would often be inexpensive films. They'd be playing in a lot of neighborhoods that would be uh, very urban. So there'd be a a large African-American population who saw this, and then they would get really attached to the idea of um, the self-defense and the discipline and the making something of yourself and the personal growth aspect of it. And uh, it just became really big in that part of the community. And then they started combining it with black exploitation films. Right. Um, like Jim Kelly, obviously, was <sighs> like huge. Black Belt Jones. Uh, 
That's right. And uh, and Cleopatra Jones incorporates all that as well. So you have this kind of melding of these genres naturally, which then all comes to fruition in The Last Dragon. Yeah. it's uh, And also there's like uh, any movie of that kind of like a break in or whatever, that kind of ilk. Uh, you can watch people break dance forever. It's the most fun thing to see like a bunch of kids break dancing. Everybody stops and lets the one guy in the middle do something. It's uh, it's an easy way to make your movie <laughs> Like 25% better. Just have a scene of breakdancing. They don't do it enough anymore, if you ask me. But then you also have this fascinating thing that they're doing that I'm not sure if it's okay or not, but it is happening, where they are incorporating Asian Americans um, speaking in jive talk. Please, I must see the master. It is very important to me. Look here, Chop. The master don't see nobody. Especially no jive coolies. Yeah, he don't see no one who don't know how to get down, baby. It's very complicated, uh, and I'm sure there could be a lot of unpacking of it, but it's just a really interesting aspect of this film. I also, that was probably my favorite gag in the movie where they were playing uh, dice in the the factory before he shows up. And then he says he has his own version of, of craps. And uh, it's, uh, <laughs> what do you call that? Uh, hops, hopscotch? Yes, uh, it's hopscotch. <laughs> I thought that was a, it was like a good, like naked gun level kind of joke. I thought that was a pretty funny, right in the middle kind of movie. It was funny too. That's the thing is it also was very very funny. Yeah, it had like it it, it like Jim Cotta took itself very seriously, even though it was quite ridiculous. This had like it was light and it was it had a good tone. They they people making the movie got it. They understood what you know. Yeah, we we know this guy's not really he doesn't really have magic hands. <laughs> <laughs> well, what did you guys think of the lead, Ty Mac? Oh, I thought it was great. Yeah, he was great, and he he played this because he's very soft spoken in the movie. He really let his muscles do the uh, do the talking. Mm-hmm. Like they didn't. I felt like every scene they had people who were quite good actors surrounding him. So kind of because obviously he was very good at the the martial arts part of it. But he was just this kind of soft-spoken man. I don't think he had a ton of dialogue in the film, really. Uh, like I say, everybody was kind of acting around him, which is a great. <laughs> that's he a great technique. Had like, yeah, he 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 could fall back on the fact that he was kind of like confused by their ways. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just put the blank look on. So he's interesting because he is a martial artist professionally. That's what he's always done. And um, uh, Ron Van Cleef, uh, who was one of the cor- one of the choreographers of the the thing, he choreographed the uh, opening battle scene in the movie theater. That's Ron Van Cleef, fascinating guy. Also came up with Bruce Lee. He was known as the Black Dragon. Did a bunch of exploitation films. Fascinating human being. If you have time to look him up, please do. Um, but he was part. A uh, Timac was part of his class, and he's the one who kind of recommended, "Hey, I think you should have a look at this guy." Apparently, this role was so coveted. Like people like Lawrence Fishburne, Wesley Snipes, like all these young uh, African-American actors who were like all coming up, were all auditioning for this role, but they wanted someone who could actually do it. So Timex showed up to audition on the very first day and he thought it was like a presentation of his skills. He didn't realize it was an audition. So he showed up and like took his shirt off and was ready to do his kata. And they were like, uh, 
here's your lines yeah. if you uh, wouldn't mind reading these kid, the you've camera. got the part <laughs> yes yeah. i don't know well no he didn't get the part but and he was really upset about that so then he went on a, a road trip with his dad and he was just fuming about it because he's like i i messed it up and i really wanted this and i feel bad about it so his dad was like well let's run lines right now and when we get back you can call that casting agent and demand he give you another chance so that's what he did he practiced the lines he figured out what it was he went back to the casting director and the casting director was like good enough and you can do the martial arts you're hired wow that's wow. that's a real you know uh a story of stick to that because uh, <laughs> it's very rare that a <laughs> people who are casting will be like yeah yeah come back in we hated you oh, before yeah. but come on uh, our, our mistake <laughs> i feel like he, because he had like um ron van cleef's initial seal of approval of like this guy can do the stunts that you need him to do right that probably helped right like i mean we now know wesley snipes and Lawrence fishburne to be action stars like they're both amazing at that but like who knows what they were capable of in 1985 yeah no it was good to have a guy that uh knew what he was doing and uh the fight scenes were great. The fight scenes were great. But so did, like, and Jim Cotta had a guy who knew what he was doing. <laughs> that didn't seem to help. <laughs> Which, those are some of the best scenes where you're watching yeah. him actually do his thing, right? It's like, it's neat to watch people actually do the thing that they do. It's one of the things I don't like about a lot of modern movies, um, and we've talked about this in the show before, is they don't take the time to teach people how to actually do the thing. Like, they don't do the four weeks of cheerleading boot camp when they're doing a mm, cheerleading movie right. anymore. Yeah. Or like, you know, like Scott Pilgrim, they were teaching them all how to fight before they did it. They don't do that anymore. Now they just cut away from everything and it looks like they're hitting and it looks like they're kicking, but they're not. Right. It's just so fast. So you don't actually see them do the thing. And I always love watching them do the thing. That's why I'm there to watch an action movie. Act. Yeah. Like Keanu Reeves in the John Wick. He's actually doing all his own, you know, fighting and being choreographed and. And it looks great. It's when you go back and watch The Matrix, they're all doing the same thing, right? And you forget that that's what action should look like. You should be watching them do the thing, and it's cool. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You never see the Hulk do his own kicks. Yeah. <laughs> that's all CG. You want that Dave jump kick moment in your movie. Exactly. Right. And in The Matrix, uh, that was when Lawrence Fishburne finally beat out Timac for the <laughs> <laughs> That is true. Well, Timac, oh, it's, the story is actually a little, a little bit sad. Uh, so he was offered two more movies based on this. There were supposed to be two more Last Dragon movies, but he was advised by his lawyer not to sign them. The first movie, he only made $60,000. The second movie was for um, $100,000, and then the second one would be $100,000, or the one after that would be $150,000. No options, no points on the back end, nothing. That was would just be what he was paid. And the lawyer was like, yeah, do not sign this. This is a really, really bad uh, contract for a franchise. And Barry Gordy, who at, up until that point had like really taken him under his wing and was like taking him to um, all these meetings, introducing him to people, taking him out for dinner, having him live in his home for a few weeks while he was like looking for a place to live in LA, just cut all contact and ties with him and said, we're done. If you're not going to sign this contract, we're done. So it's just like, oh, and it seems like like he didn't want to talk about this movie for a long time. He's now come back around to kind of dealing with it because I think he realizes what this movie means to a lot of people. Like he gets approached in the street all the time with people who grew up with this. They love it. And through that, like he seems like a pretty centered, been to a lot of therapy guy. Like he he talks the talk of therapy where he's now come back around to he gets people love this movie and so he can love it through that right that's too bad because uh like a hundred thousand in 1985 like you could buy a house and two cars for a hundred thousand dollars so <laughs> i don't understand what he was so mad about 
Yeah, but if you're starring in a, a mega franchise, like you think if they offered that to Bill Murray for Ghostbusters 2, he would have taken that? Mm. I don't know. He's an unusual character. Who knows what he is? <laughs> Harold Ramis. Let's say Harold Ramis. Let's go with someone who's slightly just as crotchety, not as wacky. I mean, I could easily see Harold Ramis being paid the least for Ghostbusters. <laughs> 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 I can see that. Well, he he worked out fine. Like, I'm not worried about him because he became a um, a really sought after choreographer for dance. Like, he worked with Madonna on her uh, uh, on her Drowned World tour. He uh, oh, cool. choreographed uh, Janet Jackson's Let's Wait a While. Like, he he found his place in the world. Don't worry about Ty Mac. He's fine. I, yeah, I, Good. I, I couldn't sleep last night. <laughs> <laughs> You're genuinely concerned. Uh, what were your guys' thoughts on Vanity? Now, I do have to say um, we will be calling her Vanity for the sake of clarity, but in her later years, she did renounce that name and did not want to be called by it. Uh, her name was Denise Matthews. But for the sake of clarity, we'll say Vanity. Oh, vanity. I do like that this the when the movie uh, starts and it's got two lead actors who only have one name. <laughs> that's, that's great. Uh, yeah, she was she was really good. Like all the acting is is remar- like better than it needed to be through the whole movie. Yeah, and she's. Uh... She's got like charisma for days. And when you see her hosting this thing, you're like, yeah, that's something that she could easily be doing. And yeah. And like Dave said, like her acting was great. She was she was kind of funny. So I thought that maybe it would be a great idea if I got myself a bodyguard, you know, like someone to guard my body. In the scenes where she was like cracking, cracking jokes and. Did she, was that actually her singing and dancing in the, the scene? Yeah. So that was like, great. Are you familiar with the Vanity story? No. I knew that later she didn't want to be Vanity. Like she became a Christian or something like that. Is that or yeah. I mean, yeah. I knew that Vanity, uh, Vanity Six are like uh, in the Prince world. Along with uh, a few, uh, you know, <laughs> whatever are the other bands that are in Purple Rain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the yeah. more stay in the time of all, yeah. all of that circle. Yes, yes, yes. So, so she's she's actually from Niagara Falls in Canada, interestingly enough. Uh, and she uh, was Miss Toronto and she competed for Miss Canada like she she was on the beauty pageant circuit. Uh, and then she moved to New York to become a model. But she was too short <laughs> to do any of the runways. Mm. But so she, she was killing went to gymnastics. <laughs> <laughs> she could have. <laughs> she missed her calling, Dave. She missed her calling. Um, but she uh, yeah, she was doing a ton of print and that kind of Kind of thing, which is how she kind of ended up in the rock and roll world. And she was Rick James's girlfriend and went ah. with him to an award show, which is then where he she met Prince and hooked up with Prince. And Prince wanted to recruit her for a band he was calling the Hookers. Uh, and he actually wanted to call her Vagina. Uh, hmm. And she said, that's not happening. And uh, so he said, well, how about Vanity? And she says, I can deal with Vanity. And then that's when. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's his compromise. <laughs> First of all, imagine like. Like, good for her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, th- this guy's so famous. He wants to make you a star. Here's the hitch. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to be in a band called The Hookers, and your name's going to be Vagina. Here you go. Uh, good, so good for her for, like, saying, hey, that's a bad idea. And, like, how famous was Prince that he was like, yeah, whatever. All of my ideas are good. <laughs> Have you ever seen, like, footage of him when he was 19 years old on the, like, when he first burst out doing the interview circuit? And, like, he's got this, like, little, the headcock thing he would do, kind of looking up, talking to, like, I think he's talking to Dick Clark in this thing. And uh, he's like, well, how long ago did you did you start working? And he just holds up four fingers of, like, four, 
worked for four years. Like, he doesn't even answer his questions. He just does like this little side look. And Dave, uh, Dick Clark is like doing his best to be like, and so you weren't comfortable with other people producing your music? No. No. <laughs> it's just like at 19, he was Prince. Like, it's just some yeah. people are just like that, right? Being a genius does not make you a good person. I'm just saying. Well, that's not been my and experience. Being a genius, like, <laughs> I, he, but also being a genius doesn't <laughs> mean all your ideas are genius. <laughs> that is very true. Well, so so the two of them were together because I'm sure both of you know the song Nasty Girl, right? I've, I've been... I've had that song stuck in my hair for like three weeks yeah. now, thanks to this movie. So she was actually on Team Prince, as you mentioned. And then uh, right before Purple Rain came out, that's when she and Prince had the fallout. She was supposed to be in Purple Rain. Um, oh. And that's when they replaced her very quickly with a very similar looking Apollonia. Apollonia. Yeah, yeah. And so she then went over to Motown because Motown was was like, um, we're going to give you a four picture deal. We're going to give you uh, uh, three three albums. You can do what you want to do. So we're give you ten thousand dollars <laughs> for, <laughs> for, four for more than likely, actually. So and she wanted to get out of like she never really wanted the sexy image that was all Prince, all the lingerie, all of that. She's like, I wanted to style myself after classic Diana Ross. And that was not happening on the Prince camp. And because that was already what was associated with her, she kind of had to keep going with that. What I One of the things I do appreciate is that she got engaged to Nikki Six at one point. Holy so she shit. was about to become Vanity Six again. Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, man. What a uh, what a dance card. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, there's an entire section just on her relationships on Wikipedia. Wow. <laughs> like it, it gets pretty intense. Adam Ant wrote the song Vanity about her. She was together with Billy Idol. Like if there was a uh, very controversial pop star who was male in the 80s, she was linked to them why isn't there a movie about her that sounds like a fantastic i would love to see Mm -hmm. a a biopic about there should be she wrote before she passed uh she passed in 2015 unfortunately uh very young at 57 from uh, kidney failure um after she was addicted to crack cocaine unfortunately and uh after an uh, an overdose her um it affected her kidneys and she ended up on dialysis for the rest of her life Uh, but while she was having her overdose, that's when she saw visions of Jesus telling her to come back to him and come back to the fold. And so she became a born again Christian for the rest of her life. But in 2010, she wrote uh, an autobiography called Blame It on Vanity, being like, it's not Prince's fault. Nothing is anybody's fault. I made my own choices. Um, anything I did is all on me. Oh, wow. That's a, a kind of a tragic story. And Dan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally. But Yikes. but uh, for me, I'm like, what a fascinating woman who took time to like reflect on her life and what yeah because she had an incredible life like everything that she did is like you were a megastar like you were one of the biggest uh eponym- uh, eponymous mononymous mononymous what, what is it when there's one name one name mononymous, is mononymous yeah. that would be it okay that's it people out there like she achieved shit that people dream about right even though it ends sadly she came back to the point where she needed to come back to yeah yeah i'm i'm i never blame it on myself it's all prince's fault for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's also everyone else's fault <laughs> that's fair but she also she's uh she's very convincing as like uh like a like a showstopper she's very like convincing as this kind of like would be famous even if this movie wasn't making her famous she just looks like somebody who would be famous you know she's gorgeous i mean she was doing um album covers she's uh on the cover of one of chromio's albums when she was uh when she was still a model right like there's just something very rock and roll captivating about her yeah wow holy cow i'm going to i'm going to hit that wikipedia page i tell you <laughs> please do I, there's a, there- the plot 
uh, being that the guy, the bad guy, Eddie Arcadian, uh, wants to have his girlfriend's video on the on the show, and that throws him into this violent rage. <laughs> he want, I mean, the man wants what he wants. It's a <laughs> little get... thin, but he is so good, and the girlfriend is so good. Well, she's a multi Tony Award winner. Like she's oh, actually well. a Broadway star, <laughs> so that's why. That was the yeah, only. I think, th- yeah, I think if you make a movie in New York instead of L.A., you can get these Broadway people. You can get William H Macy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This this uh, whoever what well, this lady who. Was the I forget what the song was, but it was Dirty was, Books. The Dirty Books is yeah. yeah. I yeah. love I love I actually thought that song was a banger too. I'm like, if you put that, I mean, she's meant to be styled after a Cindy Lauper, right? But like, it's a really good Cindy Lauper ripoff. It like, was, if I yeah. was doing a Cindy Lauper parody, that's it. Well, to tell you the truth, Eddie, it couldn't be any more boring than hanging around here with all this cook in my hair while you guys go play cops and robbers. <laughs> it was the only thing that didn't hold up logic wise uh, because her videos were awesome. They were awesome and her songs were good. So I don't understand why they would be like so resistant to putting it on the show. Because Uh, if you can't put, would you put that on next to DeBarge? Yes, I would. And that's why I'm not (laughs) in that job. I would, I would screw it up so fast. Speaking of the music, what was kind of your guys' favorite musical number out of this? It, of course, being a Motown movie. I just like where there was the big breakdance montage. That was, that was great with all where it was like everybody was wearing white. And there was a lot of uh, the, the dancers. And I think that's when all the breakdancing broke out. But also the movie theater where everybody was going bananas was a lot of fun. Too. <laughs> uh, Vanity sings this song. I think I'm assuming it's called Seventh Heaven, which I believe was I it was kind of hard to put things together. But was that the like theme song for her show? Yeah, that's the but, name of the club is Seventh Heaven. Oh, OK. Right. Um, I couldn't tell when we were in the club or the, the TV show. But it uh, that was great. Yeah. But you know the, that that four minutes of DeBarge, <laughs> four minutes of DeBarge, six minutes of Bruce Lee, and then you got yourself a movie. <laughs> it's interesting to me what what movie or what songs took off. Like obviously DeBarge became a massive hit. Charlene has fire in this, which is like the romance theme, and that bombed so hard she didn't record again for thirteen years. So Whoa. it's one of those things where it's like. Yeah, it's weird what takes off and what doesn't, and maybe just where they positioned it. Like the DeBarge, you have the whole music video, whereas the Charlene one is just in like the intimate moments, and it's no take my breath away. Was this movie successful? Like, did people enough people see this movie to 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 know that Charlene song? Oh yeah, hundred percent. This mo- movie made. I mean, it wasn't in like the top ten of the box office, but like it made enough money in the groups that it needed to make that they wanted to do sequels, right? Like they were gonna make oh, right, a franchise right. out of this. Oh. Well, they had a system. But that DeBarge song wasn't famous before that movie? Nope. That's where it comes from. Holy shit. Wow. No, that's, yeah. Yeah. The music and it was really, really good across the board. And yeah, it was good across the board. There was no scene where I was like, oh, this is going on too long. Like it clipped along really quick. But that movie theater scene, man, oh, man. <laughs> like everybody's rooting the movie for everybody else. And then show enough shows up and they're like, that's that's beyond the pale. This guy's <laughs> ruining the movie the for line. everybody. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. I do what I also I do really like is that is a very diverse movie theater. There's people from all walks of life in that movie theater. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's New York, baby. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, I think we're gonna end this episode because okay. how can we go any further than that? Uh so Graham, thank you once again for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. It was such a pleasure. Uh Dave, thank you for joining us for the first time, hopefully not the last. 
My pleasure. Thank you. This was fun. Now, do you guys want to tell people how they can listen to you uh, make funnies? Uh, yeah, we're we're both uh, on a show called Stop Podcasting Yourself, uh, and that's produced by Barry Gordy. And uh, yeah. <laughs> you're on ten dollar an episode contract. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, roundabout once we make you know a few more years of it, yeah, he's going to bump us. Yeah, up. Exactly. We're living with Barry Gordy now too, which is good. <laughs> All right. And listeners, if you want to learn more about Bruce Bloitation, I am going to send you over to the Important Cinema Club podcast with our friends Justin DeClue and Will Sloan uh, because they are extremely knowledgeable about that genre. But you can join us in two weeks where we're going to be looking at Canadian weirdness, joined by the champion of the Canadian film industry himself, Jay Baruchel. It's The Peanut Butter Solution and Crime Wave. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and the series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen. On four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland. And today, featured Graham Clark and Dave Shimka as guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagne. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.